Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. When you begin to see how easily nature bounces back if you let it and how your garden, your window box can make a real difference as a stepping stone for a migrating butterfly, then you begin to realise, you know, that that head of connectivity, of rewilding, we can all do something really positive and we can literally change the world. Hi, I'm Barry. And this is the Wisdom in Action podcast, brought to you by the Small Giants Academy. Join me as I speak with brilliant people around the world who are working within different systems to create meaningful interventions for a hopeful future. That's the thing that I'm really seeking. What are the ways we need to chart our pathway forward? How do we find our way back to one another and reconnect to this precious world around us. How can we get ourselves out of the mess that we're in and leave a world that we want to gift our children? Welcome to the Wisdom in Action podcast. Isabella Tree is an award-winning author, travel writer, and rewilding innovator. She has written six adult nonfiction books, including the bestseller, Wilding, which is one of the books that I read recently and has changed my life. She lives with her husband, the conservationist Charlie Burrell, in the middle of a pioneering rewilding project in West Sussex called NEP. You may have heard me mention NEP and Isabella's book, Wilding, in my previous conversation with Ben Goldsmith. Isabella has become a huge hero of mine and I have ear-tagged and uh, underlined her entire book. I think of it as an analogy for so many systems that are broken and barren and how we could participate in the restoration of those whole systems and in doing so have unintended magical outcomes for ourselves and future generations. Isabella, I love that I'm talking to you. It is such an honour. I am a huge fan. Oh, thank you. That's incredibly kind of you. And I love that I'm talking to you in exactly the kind of room I would imagine. Are you at NEP at the moment? Yes, I'm at NEP looking out on an early morning. I've got storks swooping past the window, white storks, a big matriarch cow leading her herd out into the woods. <laughs> I love it. And you're surrounded by mountains of books all around you. So but there was a cartoon in, you know, the sort of uh, the magazine Private Eye, which did a cartoon of my study with me in it with the headline Wilding. 
Oh my God, yes. It's a bit rude. No, it's perfect. It's exactly right. I've got both your books here and you can see they are extensively ear tagged. Of course, I love that your name is Isabella Tree. How perfect is that? I finally found the subject that works for the name. I love it. I was speaking to Ben Goldsmith and uh, he said it's a glitch in the matrix. (laughs) That's very nice. (laughs) It's a glitch and I love it. So forgive me for making you repeat a story you've told a million times, but I really want everyone listening to know why I love your work and I'm such a huge fan of yours because what you have done at your family farm, which is called NEP, I've been following for many years. I actually found it on the internet first. I was just Googling and going deeper and deeper into the work that you've been doing. So if you can just tell us the NEP story because I feel like what you've done is really changing the world. (laughs) Okay, in a nutshell, my husband and I inherited this farm in the 1980s from his grandparents. It's 3,500 acres. We're just about 40 miles south of London, about 30 miles from the coast. And it was heavily farmed, intensive arable and dairy, every inch of it pretty much ploughed. And we fully expected to be farmers for the rest of our lives. Um, Charlie had gone to agricultural college and, you know, felt he knew a bit about farming. It was already a loss-making farm when we took it over. But he felt that, you know, he was a child of the Green Revolution. He knew about pesticides and chemicals. He knew about all the new varieties of crops and, you know, the better dairy cows, that we could really make a go of farming on this land. So for 17 years, that's what we did. And we did what every good farmer is supposed to do. We intensified, we invested in infrastructure, we tried out all different diversifications. We, you know, over 17 years, we just barely ever made a profit. What we realised was that we are sitting on 320 metres of heavy clay. We're absolutely the worst land for ploughing and for intensive modern agriculture. When I was researching my book, Wilding, I discovered that there were 35 different words for mud. I mean, that's how much it governs our lives here in Sussex. In the old Sussex dialect, mud was in every conversation. So, you know, we realised by 1999 that we were going to have to change. We were £1.5 million in debt. We were looking at a market that was increasingly globalised, probably the ending of farm subsidies, EU farm subsidies, because we still were in the EU then. And without subsidies, we were absolutely toast. So Charlie made the big decision to get out of farming. And it really was a big decision because, you know, farming had been in his family for generations and it was literally going against the grain. You know, it was going against their DNA to say that we were just going to simply sell the farm machinery and the dairy cows and get out of it. And the same was for our neighbours. I mean, they just couldn't understand what we were doing. It had all kind of come to a head and we had to do something. And having made that decision to stop farming, it was actually incredibly liberating. I mean, I I hope you've never been in the position of, of being in a failing business. But if you are, you're completely transfixed. You know, you're a rabbit in the headlights and all you can think of is how you can survive to the next week, the next month, the next year. And as soon as that's gone, you have the headspace to think creatively and objectively about 
perhaps what you should have been doing all along, you know, that your land isn't suitable for farming. So it needs to be managed in a different way. Actually, when I read that part of the book, I found that really interesting in terms of human behaviour. Like normal people, I have been in failing businesses, you go down with the sinking ship. It is really hard to keep the mood and the energy and the creativity going, even though you do need, I mean, obviously you need to rally and you need to pivot. But I think the fact that you felt that letting go was when the light got in, that's actually quite unusual. I think that's true. And I I often ask myself why, you know, when we see other failing farms, why they aren't, you know, taking the leap as well. And I think often it's because, you know, we have a very emotional tie with the land, especially if we've seen it managed in a certain way for generations. It becomes a kind of cultural thing that we'll lose everything if we do something differently. And also, I think there's a thing called prospect theory, I think. And it's particularly, dare I say it, it's a particularly male thing, perhaps. When do you ever actually call it a day? Because that's when you're admitting that you were wrong for all those years. And perhaps your father and your grandfather were wrong too. So it's a really emotional thing to change tack, but it's also incredibly liberating. So most of the wonderful farmers we've known who've embarked on not necessarily rewilding, but regenerative agriculture, like Charlie Massey in Australia, have really hit the buffers, really hit the brick wall. And there's been no alternative like us to change. Because, you know, if farming had even been halfway profitable for us, this is the really shocking thing, we would still be doing it. So we wouldn't have had this amazing journey and this revelation. So It is really interesting that farming and other, particularly family businesses, I guess, can be really difficult to stand back from and look at objectively and make the right decisions about. And so you had some amazing aha moments. And one of them was when you went to Holland and you met Franz Vera. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, Franz is an amazing Dutch ecologist who you know, completely thinks outside the box. And for many years, he was kind of ridiculed and sort of hounded out of the room, really, by academia. But now his ideas really have become mainstream and he's become one of the big influences behind rewilding in in Europe and in the UK. And our introduction to him and going to visit him in Holland, um, his place called the Osvadesplassen, you know, was a complete epiphany because... What he's saying is that in all our imaginings of what temperate zone Europe looked like before human impact, we tend to imagine in Europe that it was covered in forest and we tell ourselves this, again, quite sort of anthropocentric myth that, you know, man came in, cut down the virgin forest, sowed his seed in the virgin soil. You know, it's all quite Freudian. And that's how we got this biodiverse sort of interesting matrix of habitats and wildlife kicked off and everything. In Britain, we have a saying that a squirrel could have run from John O'Groats at the top of Scotland to Land's End in Cornwall without touching the ground. You know, that's our kind of Grimm's fairy tale myth that it was all closed canopy forest. And what France is saying, and I think this is true pretty much for all over the world, including Australia, is that Big drivers of ecosystems are the large herbivores, the way they keep the landscape dynamic, the way they trash the scrub, the way they can debark and get rid of trees, but also how they can transport seeds around the landscape. They can actually encourage the growth of trees, the way they trample and rootle and open up the soil for colonisation by plants. 
the way they can change watercourses, literally in the case of the beaver, all of that disturbance creates incredibly complex habitats. And that's what's rocket fuel for wildlife. So obviously, in Europe, we've hunted many of our large herbivores to extinction. So we've lost the aurochs, um, which was the ancestor of the cow. We've lost the tarpan, the ancient horse. But we do have their domesticated descendants. We have cattle and ponies. And they can do a really good job of being a proxy for those animals. So we thought, well, why don't we take a leaf out of France's book? And if we can create new habitat on our completely chemically trashed, depleted farmland in Sussex, surrounded by A roads underneath the Gatwick stacking system, using these free roaming animals that would be a really interesting experiment for the recovery of nature. So essentially what we did was we just stopped ploughing, stopped farming after the last harvest. We, we weren't brave enough to do this all in one go. We did it over about seven years. But we just let the land go after the last harvest. The seed rain came in, the jays planted acorns, scrub took off, oak trees, saplings started appearing and then after about six or seven years, we ring-fenced the whole estate and we introduced our free-roaming herbivores. So we have our proxies for the aurochs, the old English longhorn cattle, proxies for the tarpan, our Exmoor ponies, a lovely sturdy breed. All these animals have to be able to live outside all year round. We don't supplementary feed them. There's no shelter. Um, we don't intervene at all unless we have to, you know, for veterinary reasons, but otherwise they're left entirely to their own devices We've got Tamworth pigs imitating wild boar, and we've got fallow and red deer. And the more mouthpieces, the more different species of large herbivore you can have in a landscape, and of course now we've got beavers, thank goodness, the more complex and exciting that landscape becomes. Oh, I love it so much. I mean, I have been reading your book thoroughly and slowly and just sort of taking it in because... I talked about it a bit with Ben and I'd love your thoughts on it, but that concept of shifting baselines has fascinated me since I read about it in the last few months because shifting baselines is cultural, it's inside our minds and our hearts. Maybe talk a bit about shifting baselines and, and rewilding. Yeah, so for me growing up as a child, I looked out of my window onto a landscape that was micromanaged, you know, straight hedgerows, straight rivers, they'd been canalized. I heard nightingales and cuckoos, and that was my normal landscape. That's what I thought was nature. Now we're looking at a landscape where you don't hear cuckoos, you don't hear nightingales anymore. If anything, there's even less habitat out there. And my children or my children's, because they've grown up in, at NEP, they probably don't think that way, but, but their peers think that that is normal. So when my parents were alive, my mother would describe clouds of lapwings. You just don't see that anymore. When her grandparents or great-grandparents were alive, there would have been shoals of tuna being chased by great white sharks in the North Sea. You know, that's just beyond imagining. We would have had hundreds of miles of oyster beds keeping that North Sea clean and crystal clear. You just can't even imagine it now. And so every generation has an impoverished view of what nature is, and they think that's normal. And then 
we think that's normal and we clutch and grasp at whatever's beautiful or whatever orients us towards nature, but we don't even know nature in abundance. We know nature in scarcity. And I love all the discoveries you've had at NEP on that point. So maybe if we go back to what you were describing before, how big was the piece of land you started the experiment with? Um, I mean, I suppose we started with about 300 or 350 acres around the house. It was a traditional Repton Park and it had been ploughed up during the Dig for Victory campaign in the Second World War and had been farmed ever since. So literally ploughs right up to the front door. And when we released that park, we found we had some funding from government. Actually, there was funding floating around for park restoration, just luckily. And so we thought, well, OK, this is sticking our toe in the water. Let's try this. So we stopped farming. We allowed it to revert to grassland, but we took the hay, cut and carted it to try and get rid of some of those nutrients, those chemical nutrients that we've been putting on the land for so long so that we could actually have a much more balanced um, soil for wildflowers and native grasses. And then we sowed the whole area with native grasses and wildflowers. And I'll never forget that first summer. We walked out of our door into knee-high oxide daisies. We were kicking up common blue butterflies and grasshoppers with every step. The sound of insects was absolutely overwhelming. And we realised that as farmers, we didn't even know we'd been missing that. We'd never heard it. So we suddenly thought, well, this is really exciting. And seeing the landscape change like that, it was like the whole land was breathing a sigh of relief. And I could literally watch Charlie's shoulders drop two inches. You know, he was relaxed for the first time walking out of the front door and I thought this has got to be a good thing. It's actually made me tear up. It's really moving because we've done so much damage and then we acclimatise to that new baseline and we all know since COVID that there are things that regulate our nervous systems in nature. There's a symbiosis that we are nature and there must be a way for us to be in and a part of it and with nature and you describe that it's so beautiful and I know that the whole story wasn't wildflowers and daisies and marvellous size of relief because in that seven years you actually, first of all, I think it was pretty cheeky that you took the park restoration funds in order to let it all go. I love that. That's so cheeky and so brilliant because you had an experiment in mind that no one around you would have understood had they known what you were going to do. There's two things. One, you had a lot of weeds come back, a lot of thistles and a lot of unpleasant things that the farming community around you did not like. So I'm curious both what you did about the naysayers, and it was more than naysaying. I mean, you were sent quite threatening letters and very aggressive and angry neighbours and county because you were kind of, the experiment was leading to some outcomes you, you couldn't have possibly anticipated and you need a length of time for the experiment to play out. So A, what do you do with the naysayers? And B, the convincing I am so worn down myself with having worked in the space of nature repair, restoration, impact investing, all the things that I'm doing in my life. There's a a part where really we're still convincing. Like I was convinced by an inconvenient truth. What still needs convincing? And you were first movers, you say out of necessity, but really you were first movers and there was a lot of pushback. So tell us about that. 
at the beginning, when we were rolling out this project and we had a vision, you could even get subsidies for getting out of agriculture and actually doing something for the environment. So, you know, we had meetings with the local farmers around us and theoretically we could create, you know, a 10,000 acre block of land that was bordered by rivers and roads, a really significant area for nature if other farmers wanted to join us. And we assumed they would, or at least some would be interested because there was money in it and they could actually do something for wildlife and it would be fantastic fun. And they looked at us with kind of stony faces and just couldn't believe it. Slowly, that is now beginning to change about, you know, 20 years down the line. What do you think they thought? Like if you could be their inside voice, what was the stony, what was behind? I think they thought we were mad, irresponsible. Some of the letters we got, not necessarily from farmers, but from the general public called us unpatriotic. It was a leftover, I think, from Dig for Victory in the Second World War, you know, that we, if you're not producing food, um, you're doing something really bad. There's a whole conversation to be had about food security, but there is definitely space for both rewilding and agriculture, food production. In fact, I would say that the two go hand in hand. But it's a big conversation that. In the beginning, we tried to reach out to the local community, to the farmers unions, to landowning unions or associations, to the general public. And we did tractor and trailer rides around the area to show people what was happening, the insects that were coming back. We had ecologists with us. We tried to explain the raison d'etre behind it. But what we realised was that only the people who were already engaged or at least half curious and open-minded came on those tractor and trailer rides. The real naysayers just stuck in the bunker and did not want to engage. So ultimately, it's, I think, showing by doing rather than showing by talking. And I think that's probably true for everything. Now that the project is here, it's manifestly obvious what it's doing. The species that have come back, you know, the nightingales, the turtle doves, the cuckoos, all the species that are on the verge of extinction in Britain are pouring into NEP and their numbers rise every year. We've got a dragonfly called the scarce chaser, which only occurs in six other places in Britain. And how it found us, I mean, it's just a miracle. All these creatures have found us because there's now habitat there for them. So what we're doing actually at NEP is we're sort of shifting the baseline the other way. And when people have come here and they've spent a couple of nights camping or glamping here, or even if they've just come for a walk, and you hear the volume of noise, I mean, we've now got one of the biggest populations of songbirds in Britain. You go away with this sound ringing in your ears, and perhaps you go back to the landscape you come from or places that you've loved to walk in before, and you realise that there's none of that there. So you've shifted the baseline in the opposite direction and people now know what they're missing. So I think it's really just having these demonstration sites where life is just rocketing and the soil is just heaving that change people's perception. They've got to feel it in their gut, in their heart, I think, rather than just their head. So there wasn't just the species that came back. Of course, you're talking about the soil, but I loved one of the stories in Wilding where you talked about the return of a rare orchid. Yeah, so I think we've now got five or six species of orchid and two of them are pretty rare. But orchids depend entirely on mycorrhizal fungi, those wonderful filaments that are like a kind of underground circuit board that connect with 
um, root systems of plants and trees that provide plants with the nutrients that they need. These filaments, which are kind of just like tiny skeins of cotton wool, can actually drill or mine into rock to take the minerals out. And some people think that mycorrhizal fungi networks, the wood wide web it's called, can actually <laughs> cover continents when they're in uninterrupted functioning landscapes. So mycorrhizal fungi are hugely important to the restoration of the soil for the healthy ecosystem. And when you see these orchids popping up, and you know that the only reason they're surviving is because they are connected with mycorrhizal fungi underground. You know that your soils are recovering. So seeing them pop up in the middle of fields that, you know, 10 years before had been biological deserts is really, really exciting. And I think that's the, like, you've shifted the baseline up to abundance, away from scarcity, so that human beings get to have this encounter with an abundant natural world that has been lost to us. And therein lies the hope. So as you kept developing NEP and crept forward from 300 acres to 500 acres to 1,000 acres, what was kind of happening? What did you do to the water and what happened to your neighbours? Because I want to know where it led to. Well, I mean, restoring natural water systems is another hugely important thing. So you asked earlier about what rewilding is, and I would say it's actually, it's about restoring natural processes. That can be at large scale, you know, where you've got the sort of Yellowstone in the States where you introduce the apex predators to complete the functioning ecosystem. Just to say, that is a wonderful story that people might not know. At Yellowstone, what they did, just if you could tell that story quickly... Oh, amazing. I mean, so, you know, Yellowstone, huge, wild area, but it'd be missing apex predators in the form of um, of wolves for a very long time. They had bears, not that many. They basically hunted to extinction mountain lion and wolves. And so when they reintroduced wolves, they had this extraordinary effect because it's called an apex predator trophic cascade. And so the wolves were harrying the elk and the deer and the moose and all the other large herbivores. They were obviously killing a, a fair number, but basically they were introducing a, a kind of landscape of fear. So the herbivores bunched up. They stayed in big herds for protection. They went up to higher ground, more wooded ground to escape the easy places where they could be prey. And that meant that they stayed away from the river courses for much longer periods of time because that was very easy to be hunted on, which allowed the scrub to grow up, which gave food for beavers. So beavers came back. And as the beavers came back, they started building their dams, which became a sort of sanctuary for small fish. So the fish populations then increased. The uh, aquatic insects increased to feed the fish. Because the wolves were there, they also suppressed the population of coyote, which had been able to, you know, rebound to sort of huge numbers without wolves. And with lower numbers of coyote, you've got larger numbers of small mammals, which the wolves didn't bother about. And so then you've got increasing numbers of American bald eagles and all the other raptors feeding on the small mammals. So basically, in every area of the food chain, you saw a rebound of life. And then you've done the same at NEP, and it was a gradual process. And you were saying rewilding is restoring natural processes. Yeah, I mean, so when you're at our level, we're not Yellowstone. We don't have apex predators. It's going to be a long time before Britain's ever going to see wolves introduced again. I hope we can get lynx. That's our biggest feline in Europe back one day. But 
Until then, we don't have apex predators. So in an area that's three and a half thousand acres, you know, a, a large farm, we are the apex predator. So we have to intervene to kind of keep the numbers of herbivores the right level. So you have just the right number that kind of creates that dynamic ecosystem. And the other thing we do, as you say, is to restore natural water systems. So our canalised river that was straightened as a drainage channel in Victorian times, we've returned that to its its meanders on the floodplain. So the floodplain is now functioning. It's looking very wet at the moment. So it's holding back water from farmland and roads and property downstream from us. So it's performing a really important service for the public. But we're also allowing water to sit. And on our heavy clay, it forms lakes and ponds very easily. So we're really turning into a sort of matrix of floodplain, wood pasture, scrubland and wetland. And that is incredibly dynamic with these animals moving around the system. So obviously, the smaller you go, the more interventions you need to make to replicate those natural processes. So say you've got 100 acres or 40 acres, say, and you can't put a pig in there. A sow will plough up 40 acres in a wet winter. You just simply, you know, you couldn't countenance it. So you have to become the keystone species. You think like the beaver. When you create a pond, you throw in some woody debris to, you know, mimic a beaver dam or or a lodge that's going to break down and that's going to create algae to feed the aquatic insects, to feed the fish. You're going to think like a water buffalo puddling around the edges of that pond. If you've got woodland, you'll think like a bison or maybe an elephant back in the day. So you'll go in there and kind of coppice and mimic the disturbance that those animals are creating. And you can even do that in your garden. So it's thinking like a beaver or thinking like a water buffalo and applying that to your space of nature. And I love how you talk about this process of rewilding requires enormous acceptance or surrender and humility because you're not actually crafting an outcome. And I I don't know how you had the foresight to do that because I'm very outcomes attached. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as farmers, you know, we were control freaks. And I mean, I remember when we'd made this decision to put nature back in the driving seat and we were just going to sit back and let things play out. And that means accepting the kind of boom and bust scenarios of nature and a degree of mess. I mean, it's a very, very different aesthetic looking out the window now to that controlled countryside I grew up with. Those branches left on the ground are the fallen trees, you know. Because you've also got a, well, you've got a chapter creating a mess. And I actually love that chapter because mess is incredibly hard and we're tough on ourselves and we're tough on the world because we've become consumers we're yeah. not humans in nature, we're consumers. We've got some other branding that we've purchased. And I love this quote, Henry David Thoreau in 1851, the question is not what you look at, but what you see. Exactly. And there's no such thing in nature as waste. That's a human idea. And there's no such thing in nature as mess. And I think that's where we have to really think hard about the cultural aesthetic we've grown up with. When we consider a landscape beautiful, we must ask, I think, first of all, is it a functioning landscape? Because if it isn't functioning and you really understand what's going on, and, and in England you look out at some of those heavily industrial agricultural landscapes, and it's, it is, as I say, a biological desert, it's very difficult to think of it as beautiful anymore. 
It's like, you know, perhaps an oil slick. An oil slick actually is quite beautiful. I mean, you know, you've got that amazing sheen over the top of it with the colours reflecting in the light, you know, very metallic looking. But I don't think anyone would actually call it beautiful because we know how destructive it is and we know how culpable we are in it being there. And I think that's how we should think when we look at our landscapes. So it sounds like that in the process of rewilding the farm, you rewilded yourselves. That's totally, totally true. You know, well, you can see from my office, <laughs> much more relaxed about mess. It's interesting psychologically, I think, because you do become, I guess, a bit more in the present. I mean, there's something, you know, meditative about it, or perhaps less frightened of the unexpected and the unpredictable. You know, I think we become so fixated on trying to control and we think that's a safe thing to do, that that's where security lies. But when you look at heavily controlled landscapes, they're incredibly insecure and vulnerable. And I think that's what we are like as human beings too. If we try to control our lives too much, we are very vulnerable. If we can go with the flow and accept circumstances than the unexpected and react and re respond as things happen to us and as, as circumstances change, then we're resilient, then we're stronger. And so I think that that is, it's true for us as much as it is for the landscape. I love that. Your book is not, it's not a farming book. It's not a rewilding book. I felt like I was reading like one of the best books I've ever read. I love the way that you include poetry and your turn of phrase and the way that you name things that you're observing. And I think like that Henry David Thoreau quote, it's also about your ability to see, to sort of drop down a few notches and observe and actually bear witness to the orchid that has emerged because of this profound complexity that was allowed to resurface and like I got enormous hope and inspiration from the story of NEP and there's something I'm a bit jealous of in in what you've done that you have this incredibly tangible encounter with abundance and restoration and healing you have encountered it you have allowed it to change you to be changed to protect it and NEP itself is a living example and I think we need so many living examples. I, I feel like I, you know, I said it the other day to Danny, my husband was like, ah, oh, we've done a lot of fun, awesome things, but not many of them are as tangible as something like NEP, which you now have had many thousands of not only visitors, but scientists and people from around the world studying policy makers. See, policymakers, yeah. that makes me <laughs> it's important. Cry. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think it is happening. I mean, now in, in England, we have a, over 100,000 hectares of private landowners doing NEP style rewilding projects. In Europe, there are huge projects now rewilding Europe, leading vast areas of, of restoration in the Danube Delta and the Coa Valley in Portugal to tiny little reserves in, in the Netherlands with bison and, you know, really exciting things are kicking off. And the more of that there are, it becomes a movement because people then visit them and they carry, just like mycorrhizal fungi, they spread the word and they begin to move into landscapes elsewhere and think, we need this here. And so I think it is happening. But as you say, we just need to get the ball really rolling and to get people immersing themselves in, in life again. And of course, it's not just about bringing back biodiversity. It's also about climate change because 
We've now, the government this year, paid for a study to be done here by a company called AgriCarbon. And they did some really extensive, a big data set of core samples into the soil here at NEP and discovered that we are sequestering in the soil as much carbon as a 25-year-old plantation of trees. And that's just in our soil. That's not counting the wetland, all the above-ground vegetation, all the trees that are naturally regenerating. So restoring areas like this is fantastic for wildlife, but it is also going to solve climate change. And it has also created a huge amount of stable jobs in your region. That's totally true. So, you know, one of the big misconceptions, I think, about rewilding is that it's about excluding people. And we say it's absolutely the opposite. It's about getting people connected with nature again. But it's also about kickstarting rural economies. So when we were farming, I think we employed 28 people. We now employ 70. And wow. in, in all the old farm buildings that we're slowly restoring, they've been converted into office space or light industrial use. The companies that rent those buildings off us employ 200 people. So that's 270 people back in the rural economy. So we are part of nature and it's about restoring our lives and our economies and our livelihoods as much as it is about you know getting other life back onto the land. And the thing that I really love, which I'm now, I've been obsessively Googling, um, Isabella, I've been looking, tell me more, because I not only is it terrestrial rewilding, which means land-based rewilding, but there's now river rewilding. What do you call it when it's water underwater? Um, well, I suppose Oceanic. it's river restoration, but I mean, we, we have just off our, the coast here in Sussex, an amazing project, which is 300 square kilometres of kelp restoration. Again, fantastic nursery for fish. Um, and already the fish are rebounding there. Life is rebounding, but it's also storing carbon. Our next project, I guess, is trying to connect net with the sea. So getting those. So this is what I want to talk about because this is what got me like even like every time I'm like, oh, Isabella wrote the book Wilding years ago. So now there's like a new story. There's the extension of the story. And what I love is this kind of roll on effect because your concern, NEP was this, you know, 300 acres to 500 acres to 1,000 to 4,000. But it is the sort of knock-on effect of NEP itself in the entire region around you and now all the way to the ocean. So tell us more about that. That's what I love to hear. Well, I mean, it's a lovely story. I mean, in the middle of lockdown, we had a call from a farmer called James Baird. And he said, you'll never have heard uh, of me. But he said, I read Wilding in lockdown. And he said, I couldn't believe that your cattle were as in good condition as Isabella described in her book. So I came secretly three times to check on them in different seasons. And he said, they're the best looking cattle I've ever seen. And he said, at the end of Isabella's book, she said that you have a dream one day to connect Nep with the sea. And he said, I am that connection. I have the only piece of land between Brighton and Bognor on the south coast of Britain that hasn't been developed. And so let's do it. Let's create a <gasps> corridor, a green corridor between you and me. And he's amazing. You know, he's a conventional farmer. He grows peas for bird's eye. He's not going to change, you know, farming, but he realizes that he now has to give back something to the land. 
And so within six months, he, we'd signed a memorandum of understanding with farmers and landowners between us. We've now created this project called Wheel to Waves. And James is working on that a day a week, talking to farmers that they're very unlikely to want to rewild, but they may find that they can sacrifice, you know, that field that has always been a pig to farm. They can grow out their hedgerows. They could sacrifice a field to the floodplain. And slowly, slowly, we can begin to connect areas of nature together again. And why is that important? At the moment, we've got tiny little pockets of nature that are very isolated. They're surrounded by development or monoculture agriculture. So it's very difficult for populations of species to connect with each other, which means that their genetic diversity is falling, which means they're getting inbred, essentially, and that is bad for their general resilience and their health. So if we want to have healthy growing populations, they've got to be able to meet each other. But we've also got to acknowledge that, you know, with our rising temperatures, animals are going to have to be able to move further north or south, depending on where you are on the globe. But they've got to go to habitats that are still going to be conducive to them. And they may even have to go up in altitude to find areas to get away from the heat. And they're only going to be able to do that, many species, if they can actually move safely through landscapes. You know, birds can fly, some insects can travel large distances, but mostly even birds have been, and I think this is actually Australian studies, have shown that even birds actually don't like flying across huge motorways. So, you know, our fragmented landscapes really are disrupting the ability of species to breed and to be resilient in the face of climate change and pollution and everything else we throw at them. Wheel to Waves is now, I think it's 100 miles long. It's down three river catchments and they're reaching the sea, the coast, like a kind of trident. We launched our website just a few months ago and it's open to, so you could, it's an interactive map. It's so exciting because it shows how landscape change can actually happen on the ground with all these different communities. You can register your interest if you've got land in that green corridor and then a little spot goes up um, you could have a garden, you could have a playground, a school playground, you could have a cemetery, a churchyard. And all these little dots suddenly are popping up, populating this this map. It's it's really thrilling. And everyone is beginning to get involved. I love it because it, it's about, comes back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about being in flow with the rhythm of life itself and not creating these, even these island oases. That's great. But once you create the oasis, you realise, as you said, how barren the rest of the land is and how dangerous that is because we're not just talking about the British Isles and I am actually running an impact safari called Rewilding the British Isles, so I have to see if I can rope you (laughs) in. Yeah, with 25 Aussies coming over to sort of have the experience, as you say, and be changed by the encounter with that abundant shifted baseline. But not only that, I love the analogy around the fences being taken down, all the internal fences taken down and only the external fence and and then just growing that and understanding that actually a lot of these birds are migrating from Africa and ultimately we are going to need to collaborate globally to create globally connected rewilded landscapes so that those birds are not starving and exhausted by the time they get 
to their natural flight paths. And that is really profound because I've worked in the economy with Kate Raworth, the incredible Oxford scholar on donut economics as a thesis for the next economy. And one of the aha moments for me with Kate was she said, we need to move from city-state economic management to think planetary. Absolutely. We actually must extend our imagination to whole planet living, whole planet resources. And we need to weave ourselves back into this planetary circumstance where we are a sentient being and we're custodians and stewards of all the other sentient beings. So rewilding, what I love about your whole thesis, rewilding is not taking us out, it's reweaving us back in. That's absolutely right. And, you know, you, that's a fantastic example with the migratory species. And, you know, we've introduced white storks here at NEP. So we've got white storks breeding here for the first time in 600 years in Britain. And, you know, they're a fantastic umbrella species because they migrate to Africa. You know, they're a huge charismatic bird that lives on your chimney, but you don't need to own a pair of binoculars to be able to recognise it. So it, it's really attractive to people. And, we have an interactive map now on the on the White Stork project, which shows where these birds, we put GPS trackers on about 10 of them every year. And so you can see them going on their migration. And so naturally, you become really concerned about what the environment is out there for them. Just like the monarch butterflies in, in the States and flying all the way down from Canada to Mexico. You know, that is such an engaging, powerful emblem of thinking of the connectivity of the habitats that, you know, are broken all the way along that migratory route and how we've got to think like a planet again. Yeah, think like a planet and our part in it, which is so joyful, actually. People are always like, well, where's the hope? The hope is in participating in that. And since I've read Wilding and and Ben's book, God is an Octopus, I've just become this mega nerd. I am watching... The river restoration, which they call the revolution, which I love. And I'm just watching that same analogy, that same metaphor, that playing out in the river, like removing all the dams of Europe and all the weirs and how we've really just been getting in the way of all of the natural processes on the planet and our own internal natural processes. We've just been getting in the way and that our job is to remove the dams, to stop the algal blooms, to allow the salmon and the trout to move freely upstream, which is like a a really ridiculous thing for a fish to do. (laughs) Exactly. We've got to let it flow. And We've removed six weirs on our tiny little river and we've got sea trout migrating up to NEP for the first time in decades and decades and decades. But, you know, the Environment Agency, when we said, you know, look, we'd like to remove these weirs, what is the reason for them being there? They didn't know. And they didn't know why they were spending hundreds of thousands of pounds a year on preserving these blockages in the river. So eventually when they realised there was no reason, they said, okay, well, we'll take them out. But, you know, you just think this is mad. Well, what is your advice to anyone listening to this? I mean, I feel like you can apply the story of NEP and rewilding to every sector 
in the world that is intransigent, that is stuck in 100-year-old or 500-year-old ways. I mean, really what you've done is entrepreneurial and innovative in the extreme. You describe it differently. Oh, we just sort of got out of the way and partnered with nature, but you restored your own nervous system and that of the land. You went against enormous opposition ancient institutions that said no just because. What's your advice then for innovating our way to an abundant new baseline? Well, I think that every single one of us can play a part. And I think it's the solution to eco-anxiety. I mean, the propensity of us all to ignore the headlines because we feel that we just can't do anything about it. It's so enormous. How does one individual make a difference? But when you begin to see how easily nature bounces back if you let it and how your garden, your window box can make a real difference as a stepping stone for a migrating butterfly, then you begin to realise, you know, with that head of connectivity, of rewilding, that we can all do something really positive and we can literally change the world. And I think that's what we're trying to do in, in the book of Wilding and the, the, the practical guide of how to do it is to show that by thinking in a certain way, and especially by connecting with others, you can really, really be a force for change. And it, it's not only a huge relief to kind of feel that it's doable, but it, it's also fantastic fun hugely rewarding. I love that because a lot of activists I know are very angry and burnt out and a shell of themselves at the end. But when I think of the analogy of what you're saying, the B Corporation movement in business, like when we brought that to Australia, there was this kind of mycorrhizal fungi of, you know, ethical business people who really wanted to do things differently in the business community. And I just would encourage anyone to read your absolutely astonishingly wonderful book, Wilding, which I know has impacted millions of people because, like you say, the mindset of rewilding, it can be applied to anything. Uh, What I'm thinking of is someone in the corporate world, like I know that it is exhausting to be the sustainability manager in a large corporation because those are really big, stuck, complacent behemoths. Certainly in Australia, I'm sorry to say, I don't want to say that, but I am saying that that is true because we're a very comfortable part of the world, Australia. We've been relying on extraction and and minerals and mining, which I think is okay in the sense that we know not what we do, but when we know better, we have to do better. You know, I was saying my own kind of inheritance, a lot of it came from fossil fuel extraction. And my grandfather thought that was awesome. But there's another layer, I guess, that kind of, if you are those intrapreneurs, if you are those people who are trying to speak on behalf of nature inside of these big clunky machines, I guess it can be harder, but maybe the rewilding ethos can still I think it can really help. We we have a lot of workshops and corporate days here, you know, businesses that want to hold their AGMs at NEP. They may be not connected with nature at all, but obviously companies now are having to think about their carbon footprint and their environmental impact. And that's hugely exciting. I think that, you know, even if they're, they're banks or they're very urban, you know, centric, we're beginning to see companies coming to NEP because they have a a corporate bonding day or an AGM or they're having to thrash out new policy. And just walking off into the rewilding project with one of our ecologists, 
really makes them think outside the box. It changes the, the neural wiring and they find it very, very productive. But I think that what's happening with the private sector and, you know, we're seeing that huge growth now, investment in, in rewilding projects coming from the f- private sector. I actually want to ask you about that. What is your take on biodiversity credits? Well, Charlie, my husband, has been very heavily involved in this with a company called Replanet. And it's really exciting because I think one of the problems with chasing carbon credits is that you quite often follow a model which is all about planting trees. And we know that that can be hugely environmentally damaging, you know, thinking about planting Sitka spruce in peat bogs, you know, and releasing carbon into the atmosphere. It can actually be completely counterproductive and it's also terrible for biodiversity. But the reason carbon has been so easy to chase is because it's so easy to measure and because it can be tradable around the world. It doesn't change as a unit. Whereas biodiversity, how do you measure and compare biodiversity at NEP in West Sussex in England with a coral reef in Indonesia or the tundra? So now, I mean, I think there's quite a few different institutions and collaborations working on how to measure biodiversity credits or biodiversity to make a credit out of them. But the Wallacea Trust and Replanet have done it. And so, you know, there is now a biodiversity credit which will change the focus of investment from just planting trees to doing biodiversity, which inevitably leads to carbon storage. You can store carbon and not do anything for biodiversity, but you can't do something for biodiversity and not do something for carbon. So you can now stack the two together. And Charlie's new company called Natagal is actually using this sort of idea of pulling in private investment into rewilding projects in perpetuity and with big communal buy-in. That's really important that communities around rewilding projects are, are involved to unlock that investment. So in a way, I think what's happening now is that we are the public and the private sector. I mean, the public being us, the public, are actually moving this faster than governments. And that's really exciting. It is exciting. And I'm so relieved you say that because I've got a biodiverse carbon fund in Australia that I've just launched. So I'm like, if Isabella says it's a no-go, I'm going to have to start from scratch. So that's excellent. And I guess the final thing, which is something I asked you before, but you probably didn't answer it because you're such a positive, wonderful, rewilded soul. And I know you get enormous sustenance and nourishment from the work that you're doing and have done there. And and to be honest, like, I feel like you could just sit on your front porch and have a martini and watch it go, you know, like you've really we, we changed sometimes. the world. <laughs> you do. Excellent. I'm very happy. But you've really contributed incredible things to changing the world with an abundance mindset, with joy, with fun. And I think that's what I've been seeking since I kind of, I hit rock bottom of despair about the state of the world. And I've got three young children. I can't afford that kind of mindset. We have to do something. It is not tools down time. And you give me enormous courage. My despair still 
comes when I come back from Europe, which does feel buzzy and alive around biodiversity and there's stuff happening and they're tearing down dams and you've got NEP and cool things are happening and it's going into policy. Australia's still asleep and complacency and convincing. Do you ever have despair? Do you ever feel like, oh, bugger this. I don't want to need to convince you. The proof is in the pudding. Like, do you have those moments? Definitely. And I think, you know, we're incredibly lucky now. We live in a bubble to some degree at NEP, you know, so we can walk out and see amazing things. It's when we travel that we begin to feel really uneasy. We've just been on a book tour in the States and some of that is just, you know, it's it's big scale scary. And um, how are we ever going to change a huge mindset? I sat next to one woman who... Um, said, I don't understand about all this oil and gas thing, because we obviously we need oil and gas. Is it something to do with the smell? Is that the problem? And I just thought, oh, my God. You know, so I think you have to, as an activist, I guess, like we both are, you have to have a kind of combination of hope. And, you know, that comes from seeing things that are really positive that are happening and being with people who are doing this stuff and anger with the, you know, the governments, the institutions, the people that aren't moving fast enough and that could. So it's that combination of anger and hope, I think, that actually gets you off your seat and doing stuff. Well, it actually sounds like a whole lot of love. <laughs> and that too. <laughs> Isabella, thank you so, so much. What a joy and really an absolute privilege to have had this time with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely talking to you. I mean, come on, Isabella Tree. I just got to interview one of my heroes. Oh, so good. What a joy. What a woman. Uh, what a visionary and so delightful. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All the best people are, to be honest. People who've done those rad things I just find are always people that I want to be when I grow up. So that was incredible. And I am being cheeky. And I'm going to say that we are running an impact safari rewilding the British Isles, which was totally inspired by Isabella's farm, NEP. NEP will be one of the places we visit on the Impact Safari and also Ben's farm from God is an Octopus. Those two places will be on the list. And I've also got the Biodiverse Carbon Fund through my impact investing business, Sentient. So that will all be in the show notes. Just always weaving the wisdom that I glean from people like Isabella into the work that we do because it gives me life and I always want to know what to do after I've been so stirred and so enlivened and I just want that for all of us. I want a shifted baseline up to abundance, not plunging into ever more scarcity because I think that a rewilded world would heal us, would restore settings for humanity. It would be the repair and the healing that we long for. And I don't really see what's stopping us. There are many people listening to this conversation who have agency and who can hear this conversation and action some pretty big game-changing projects so let's do it let's rewild the world
This episode was part of a special 10-part season where I've been exploring systems thinking in the metacrisis. But we also have an incredible catalogue of episodes from our previous podcast, Dumbo Feather. I speak with some of my heroes like Esther Perel, Nate Hagens, Brene Brown, Johan Hari and more. So if you want to listen, they are there on the Wisdom in Action podcast, available on your favourite podcast app. If you want to turn this wisdom into action, go to smallgiants.com.au for more information about the incredible programs and events we run. You can also find pieces of wisdom that you can turn into action for each episode at smallgiants.com.au forward slash wisdom and action, along with the show notes. And of course, I absolutely love hearing from you. You can connect with me on Instagram at Berry Feather, follow the podcast at Wisdom and Action, or write to us at podcast at smallgiants.com.au.